may be seated. And good morning to you. Well, those were some interesting readings, were they not? I, I, I was probably imagining this, but I couldn't help but notice the like cartoon question marks kind of springing up over people's heads as we read those sobering words of, of judgment, words of destruction, uh, disturbing things, are they not? But part of the whole counsel of God, which we are called to proclaim. Our gospel reading from Mark 13 that we just heard read is a passage usually referred to as the Olivet Discourse because these words are spoken by our Lord there at the Mount of Olives near the temple area in Jerusalem. These words are also found in Matthew, which is the longest version, and also Luke's gospel. Two days earlier, following his triumphal entry, Jesus goes to the temple, one of the most magnificent structures in the ancient world. Now this was, do we have a picture of the temple? Where's our temple? There it is. Thank you. It was one of the most magnificent structures of the ancient world. It was uh, the second temple, actually, built around 516 B.C., and also known as Herod's Temple because of his vast renovations. Well, the very next day, Jesus goes to the temple, and he drives out the money changers and the vendors, denouncing them as thieves. Even more shocking than that, he dares to call the holy temple of God his father's house. The next day, we find Jesus back at the temple, disputing with the leaders there. And that led Jesus to offer what we call the parable of the vineyard. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll recall that Bishop David Bryan preached from that very text. There our Lord speaks of the nation of Israel as the vineyard, and that the owner, God, has entrusted this vineyard to his servants. He rightly expects a share of the fruit, and those he sends, which symbolizes the prophets, were treated badly, though, one after the other. And so the owner says, I will send my beloved son. Him they will respect. Him they will listen to. And if that, if that phrase sounds familiar to you, well, it should. Is that not what, if you go back to Jesus' baptism, is that not what the father said from the cloud? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Well, instead, they killed him. Jesus concludes by asking, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus asks the rhetorical question, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The religious leaders correctly assumed that Jesus was talking about them. And though Jesus continues his teaching, where? In the temple. Where else? So we come to chapter 13, where Jesus predicts the temple's destruction. Now, some of the disciples asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They correctly perceived that the end, that the, anything is cataclysmic is the destruction of the temple, and indeed, all of Jerusalem would signal the end of the age, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Jesus refers to it as the abomination of desolation. That's a curious phrase, is it not? We saw that this morning in our reading from Daniel. Abomination or abominable is not a word we are here often used in our language these days. By definition, it is anything that causes one to feel disgust or hatred, outrage, loathing, that sort of thing. And the results 
of the, the, the results of this is that the temple becomes desolate or bleak and empty. Now, how Daniel understood these words of prophecy that we read earlier, we're not going to go into today. More to the point, Jesus applies these words to himself and to the questions the apostles put to him. And our Lord leaves no doubt that he applies Daniel's words to what would happen to those of his own generation. Again, verse 30 from Mark 13 that we just read. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. He uses Daniel's imagery and words to tell how the temple will be desecrated and made desolate during what the Romans referred to as the Jewish War that took place in the year 66 on in through the year 70 A.D., 40 years after the death of Jesus, or a generation. But, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where you ought not to be in the holy place, that is in the temple, then let those who are in Judea do this, and he gives specific instructions, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And he goes, gives very specific instructions to, to leave immediately. And here Luke adds these words, For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Not some future generations. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we, we speak of the, the two different ages, the age of the law and the age of the, the uh, to come, the, law, the uh, covenant of grace. Jesus spoke about that at the Last Supper, did he not, when he took the cup, the Passover meal cup, and instead of saying this is the, this is the, the blood of the Lamb of God, this is the Paschal Lamb, no, he says this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood symbolizing the new covenant. Between these two interim periods, though, these are called the last days. Well, the Jews were correct about the Messiah ushering in a new age, but what they could not see was that, A, it was not a physical geopolitical kingdom like we normally think of kingdoms. Thus, our Lord tells Pilate a few days from hence, my kingdom is not of this world. You don't need to feel threatened. Yes, you know, Pilate says, oh, you are a king. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. And B, it would now, to their surprise, the kingdom include Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, Gentiles, even though Jesus spoke of this throughout his public ministry, as when he spoke of himself in John chapter 10 as the great shepherd. He says in verse 16, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. They're not Jewish. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then Jesus goes on to give them these specific instructions about when to leave the city, specific warnings about how to survive. And he says this in verse 22, for false Christs, false messiahs, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the very elect. Now this also happened, in fact, and led to the slaughter, because these false prophets and false messiahs convinced the masses that if they would just take up arms, I mean, they didn't have an army, but if they would just take up arms against the Roman soldiers, God would miraculously intervene and grant, and grant them victory. 
And that, of course, did not happen. There was a Jewish historian of those days named Flavius Josephus. He wrote a very detailed account of the Jewish war. And he speaks of a great famine, horrific famine. There were, there were those who wound up eating their dead children. Dreadful things happened. The temple was accidentally burned. They didn't intend to, but it was accidentally burned. Much of the gold and the artifacts melted, and the gold dripped between the stones so that they had to overturn the stones to recover the gold. Hence Jesus' words that one stone would not be left upon the other. All the gold and the loot and everything they took off as trophies of this great war and took it off, off into Rome, where there are still monuments to this day commemorating this great victory that they had. The siege of Jerusalem began in 66, ended with total destruction in the year 70, over a million casualties among the Jewish people. Those who believed Jesus' words, however, fled north to the Transjordan region, beyond the Jordan, and escaped death. Now, continuing on in verse 24, our Lord says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I'll say more about that in a moment, too. When speaking of himself in the second person, Jesus more often than not refers to himself not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man, which is just another term for Messiah. It is a term from the book of Daniel. At his trial, the high priest asked Jesus pointedly, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That from Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. Now, the religious leaders knew their Bibles. They knew that Jesus was quoting Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, not notice from the Ancient of Days, but he came to the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him, and to him was given, now note this carefully, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." priests and the leaders knew this. And that's why we read that the high priest at that point exploded in rage, ripped open his garments, his vestments in a fit of rage, and Jesus is condemned for blasphemy and goes to the cross. Let's fast forward about six weeks after the crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection to the event known as the ascension of Jesus. With the advent of Jesus, and Advent will be here soon, will it not? We celebrate the coming of Jesus. With the advent of Jesus, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, do what? Repent and believe the gospel. But with Satan's defeat at the cross and the power of sin and death broken, his ascension is, really, in the words of the late R.C. Sproul, his coronation, his investiture as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Insofar as Jesus presently occupies 
the seat of cosmic authority, the kingdom of God has come. Yet his reign remains invisible to men. It is yet to be made fully manifest on earth. And so you'll hear us sometimes speak of the kingdom of God as, yes, a present reality, but also a future reality. It is here, and it continues to grow throughout our world. This is God's world, and it is the kingdom of Christ, but it will not be so in its fullness until the last day, the very last day. Well, at his ascension, Jesus fulfills the words of Daniel by ascending to his father, the Ancient of Days. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, those in the heavens. This is not the second coming, as many people suppose, or some secret rapture. How do we know that? Well, simply, he speaks of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens being shaken. That is a quote from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, the Old Testament prophet. And after Jesus' ascension into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, what happens next? Acts chapter 2, which is the story of Pentecost. Pentecost, exactly. For what happened? People from every language group in the empire were gathered. Some ethnic Jews, others Gentile converts to Judaism. But they hear the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages. And when asked for an explanation, what does Peter say? This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. Jesus told me himself. That's, that, that's, that's where he got it. Jesus had just said this a few days earlier. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. And then he goes on to proclaim the gospel to this huge crowd and just a portion of it. Let's note, note some of Peter's words here. He says, and in the last days, that days he was living in, in the last days, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, Peter says, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Here it comes, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And the day before the day of the Lord comes, that great, magnificent day. This is what our Lord spoke of earlier in the Olivet Discourse. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter then goes on to preach the gospel to those at, at the feast. And I've always kind of identified with Peter um, in, in this sense. Uh, I consider him to be the unofficial patron saint of those who are never at a loss for words, whether they have anything to say or not. But, but you knew that. Uh, here, however, here, however, Peter is fulfilling Jesus' prophecy of Mark chapter 13, 27, which says, And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What are angels? Well, they're messengers. They're messengers. In fact, the word evangelist, and the word gospel, or good news, and angel, all come from the same root in the, in the Greek language. And the word apostle also means messenger or sent one. It really, none of those words actually had a completely religious connotation at all in those days. They were just normal vocabulary words. And that's exactly what happened during Peter's first sermon. 
God used his sent one, his messenger, Simon Peter, to start gathering his elect. Now when they heard this, reading again from Acts 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls or gathers to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For this passing, and it will be gone. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's not bad for someone's first sermon, is it? <laughs> Pretty good. Well, we began this morning with Jesus calling himself the stone that the builders rejected. And Peter, no doubt, recalling our Lord's parable, said this to those in his day and to us who have savingly believed on Jesus, reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're going to do that in just a few minutes here at this altar, are we not? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, who gathered you out of this world into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And my friends, it is my sincere prayer that this is true of you today. That, that these words resonate with you, that you know these truths, because this is the gospel. This is the good news. It is sadly very fashionable in our day, in our culture, to downplay, even to outright deny the idea of the wrath of God, that God could be angry. There's a huge billboard in Orlando. I started to include some of that today. It says, God is not angry. But someone has noticed it's in, it's in all caps. You know what that means. R.C. Sproul said of that, if God is angry, he's probably angry at that billboard what he's really angry at. Well, last week, Dean Michael spoke of his love for the gospel, the good news, the message of eternal salvation that Jesus offers. And I, I share that love very much, and I hope that you do too, because we rightly emphasize the blessings of knowing and following Jesus, not only in this life, but throughout eternity in our true home in the eternal kingdom of God. And we're right to do that. Because that is what it is. It is good news. But dearly beloved, the reason the gospel is such good news is that the bad news is so incredibly bad. 
And that's what we read earlier from the book of Hebrews in just that one sentence alone. It is a fearful thing. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Far worse than what happened to that generation of unbelievers who were destroyed by the Romans. That is a temporal judgment of God, but to fall into the hands of the living God and eternally be separated from him. That indeed is bad news, but it makes the good news all that much good. And what is the command to us today? The same as Jesus said when he said the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what God tells us to do. Turn to Christ, repent, and believe the gospel. And so, well, I'm not sure what that looks like. There may be some of you here this morning that, that maybe that seems good or you think you maybe know what that means, you're not sure. Would you, would you do something? Would you, A, cry out to Jesus. Say, Lord, I need, to, I need to know this. I need to understand it. And secondly, find someone that you can speak to about that. Maybe a Christian friend of yours, if you know someone who truly knows the Lord and walks with the Lord, speak to them. Speak to one of the clergy folks here at, at Holy Cross. We're easy to spot. We're, 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 it's easy to spot us, right? We, we wear the uniform. So, so please do that. And I would encourage you to do that. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and who makes that possible for us to be what we are, are indeed called to be, namely your children. And Father, I pray for each one here today. I pray that this is a living reality for each one. And if there's anyone here today for whom that's not really a reality in their lives, I pray that it would be and that your spirit would guide them and, and show them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.